0: I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is August 13th, 2020. Today's episode is actually a recording from a recent Zoom webinar roundtable we did with our geopolitical experts. On the call were Rachel Washburn, Major General James spider Marks, and Lieutenant General Bob Walsh, along with our macro strategist, Peter Churik. We are very pleased to have a live Zoom roundtable where our clients could watch, listen, ask questions, and interact with our geopolitical experts. We will be doing several of these in the future and would love to have you join. If you are interested in joining something like this, please email us at info at academysecurities.com, and we will let you know when new events get scheduled. The topic for this specific discussion was China as a Strategic Competitor and it took place on August 4th, 2020.
1: Welcome to Academy Securities Geopolitical Discussion. Today, we will focus on the evolving policy changes with regard to the US relationship to China and the economic and political geopolitical implications of strategic competition as laid out in the National Security Strategy. Academy Securities, as a service-disabled veteran-owned investment bank, constantly strives to add value to our clients and partners. At the intersection of this authenticity and capability is our firm's geopolitical intelligence group. Today, we are excited to bring you the valuable insights of General Spider Marks and General Bob Walsh. Collectively, they have over 65 years of service to nation, shaping foreign policy and working at the tip of the spear on the most complicated and dynamic challenges facing the US and the international community. An integral element of this uh, capability is Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. With over 25 years of industry experience, Peter contextualizes the input from our team of 13 retired admirals and generals. He helps investors and corporations alike understand the implications of national security and foreign policy challenges. General Walsh, in an effort to frame the discussion and given your role shaping the most recent national security strategy, can you start us off with your view on the current state of affairs? Yeah, well, thank you
2: very much, Rachel, and uh, also uh, thank you to all our virtual participants and also the clients out there very happy to be here and working with you um i'll start off by saying there's really been an awakening in the strategic challenges for the countries across the globe and how we deal with china it's not black and white and there's a lot of difference in how we should handle that relationship key part is the economies are very intertwined that's much different than we saw in the past when we had uh rising tensions or conflict with the Soviet Union, where it was mainly a military-focused competition. So at the end, we really welcome your your questions and your comments, because I think we all learn from each other as we have these discussions. Um, You know, I think the shift in the way we've approached China has been rising really over several administrations. It started, you know, with the Obama administration with the pivot to the Pacific, if we can remember that. The Trump administration has taken a much more strategic view of things, I think, by placing China for the first time and calling them out as a strategic competitor in the national security strategy. But the challenges here are quite different between the two countries. The countries are very different if you look at them and how they approach different situations. There's ideological differences. Uh, China's state-run capitalism is different. They have civil-military fusion. Um, We've seen coercion and intimidation of other countries. Uh, theft of intellectual property and uh, uh, proprietary secrets, forced tech transfer, acquisitions of companies that have high tech. Uh, All of this is causing global rising of tensions. Um, We've tried to work with China in the past. And I think in the past, all the way from the Nixon administration, there was a challenge of whether China would be a strategic partner or strategic competitor. And like I said, this administration has called them out as a, a strategic competitor. What we've seen from President Xi is really a concentration of power, uh, not only around him, but also the Communist Party. This is something we really haven't seen to this type of level since Mao Zedong. Um, Other actions we've seen recently, we just saw a $400 billion uh, deal really signed between China and Iran. Uh, That includes defense and intelligence sharing. Um, We've also seen them suppress democracy and the agreed to one country, two systems framework uh, in Hong Kong uh, through their Hong Kong National Security Act. Their military, we see them now planning a large scale exercise to um, seize Taiwanese held islands. Uh, We've seen their COVID-19 response, the island grabbing uh, actions in the South China Sea. We've recently seen border incidents with India and uh, certainly we've called them out on the weaker repression of their population there in Xinjiang province. Um, so all these things, along with the recent delaying of the Hong Kong legislative elections that were due to come up in September. So with that long expansive list, I'll
3: stop there and turn it over to my good friend Spider Marks for his thoughts. General Walsh, thanks very much. And again, Rachel, thank you for setting this up. Peter, great to see you and always, a- wonderful opportunity to talk to our clients and our friends so thanks for dialing in today to to take what bob just said and and kind of put what i would call maybe a more tactical or the filter of today on top of that um there really are five myths around which the united states has routinely viewed china and we have to work our way through each one of those they are that if we we think that if we engage with china China will cooperate, myth number one. Myth number two is China wants to be democratic, not so. Myth number three is that we tend to view China as a fragile flower, a peasant state that has routinely been fighting against external foreign occupancy that has routinely kind of pillaged China, not so. The fourth is that China very specifically wants to be like the United States of America, again, not true. And then the fifth that General Walsh touched upon that is incredibly important to national security is that we view the China hawks as weak. In other words, there's a moderate voice that really guides the CCP. The China hawks are incredibly strong. And in fact, the military is probably more hawkish than the the civilian leadership of the CCP. So our requirement is to view China today understanding what those myths are, and as General Walsh described, we've got the COVID challenge, we've got the economic collapse challenge, we've got the national security and extradition laws in Hong Kong, the potential money flight out of Hong Kong, and then China's really banging away at Taiwan, primarily because the way Taiwan handled the COVID crisis, vis-a-vis the way China handled the COVID crisis. Taiwan did a significantly better job. So the international filter right now on China is that China really needs to be put in the penalty box. There are some advantages with the view of China looking at looking at that, um, that regime right now through that filter. Let me stop right now and turn it over to Peter to, to get his initial thoughts, but thank you.
4: Thanks very much, uh, Generals. So taking one quick step back, I think, This concept of China as a strategic competitor is something Academy started talking about over a year ago, and I think that's very important, and we're going to kind of make sure that theme comes up. We're going to make sure that this is linked to a lot of national security, national defense policies, which is part of the reason we believe that regardless of the outcome of the 2020 election, our relationship and ongoing relationship with China is changing, it's evolving, and it's going to be something that we as investors or businesses have to deal with. The geopolitical has helped incredibly when we were looking at the trade deal. I think we caught a lot of the good ebbs and flows of trade negotiation with China because we had this input from the geopolitical side. So I think we're gonna cover a few subjects here that are super relevant over the coming months. And we'll start really with more of the traditional geopolitical side where I think we have viewed China as one country, two systems. And I think we've let ground slide in Hong Kong We've seen increased friction between China and India. We've seen China take you know, progressive steps in the South Sea. And I think right now everyone's behaving as though Taiwan is not at risk of becoming Taipei. And that might be counterintuitive to everything else we've seen. So I kind of want to toss it back to the generals. How do you see us engaging with China in some of these very difficult areas where I think we have bipartisan support over here against China, but aren't making much progress necessarily?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is, what we have to do is realize that the the Trump administration is set out as a strategic competitor, if you said. So we're in competition with them, competition diplomatically, informationally, uh, militarily, and economically. So we're in competition. But the economies are so intertwined that we've got to continue to work with them. So it's a combination of strategic competition, but managing those relationships with them are very important. So much different than it was with the Soviet Union, where it was managing those relationships so we didn't go to nuclear war. This is much different in the sense that we're competing with them strategically across many different lines of operation. So therefore, with that going on, it's more managing that competition. And how do we call China out as necessary to bring them in accordance with global norms?
3: You know, let me let me follow up on what Bob just said. You know, it's it's important when you look at those four elements of power that Bob just described, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. I mean, when you come right down to it, those are the only elements, those are the only means by which we can engage. And with China, we have an opportunity now because of the fact of where we are relative to the COVID crisis, relative to the trade imbalance, relative to the work, what I would call this world view of China as being really in the penalty box and having created a number of these incredible challenges that we're now confronting is there is a great opportunity to have China. And I would think China would acknowledge that they are probably gonna have to give up some of their advantaged positions along the margins. So I think globally, it's an opportunity to economically gain some advantage for the Western democratic, what I would call those mercantile states in terms of their engagement with China, the repatriation of supply lines back to national borders, wherever they are, in particular, the United States. And I think there's a real willingness on the part of the United States population to do that, even though there might be an increased cost attendant to that. But it's necessary. We haven't had these discussions until we've been confronted with the challenges that we now have. So there is an opportunity to gain some ground based on the circumstances that we're confronted with right now.
4: I think that makes a lot of sense and kind of leads us directly to this next subject where, you know, I I think we've all viewed potentially this development or onset of 5G as when people ask why now, why are we much more at odds about China? Why is some of the intellectual property issues more more of a concern. And my view is really 5G to some degree was a catalyst where you see this, you know, transformational technology developing. And all of a sudden we're much more worried about IT, IP. Um, You know, Huawei has obviously been an issue. Now we're dealing with TikTok as an issue. And China has made very clear that they wanna be very good at machine learning, at big data, at, at blockchain. And, you know, I'll mention before returning back to you, General Stewart, who is another one of our uh, 13 generals and admirals, served as uh, head of cyber for Department of Defense. He often talks about 5G as he's very in favor of this policy of kind of being against Huawei. He does mention that there's a fair bit of disappointment that right now there's not necessarily a good U.S. alternative. We kind of have this situation where we can tell the U.K., who's part of Five Eyes, not to use Huawei, but we don't necessarily have a you know, domestic solution. How do you see this friction between cyber and all these other issues playing out? Is this workable? Are we starting from scratch? Is this going to be an ongoing source of friction?
2: Well, I'll, I'll take that one to start, uh, Peter. I think, you know, the future, it's, we're in a digital world. So everything today is all about information. Uh, controlling information and information flow, uh, data across the world is so vitally important. And I think what what the Trump administration probably saw with this was what we see in the military is our information flow in the military through our command and control networks is so vital to everything we do. So if Huawei was able to control the vital information links across the globe and a company like that closely tied by law to the Communist Party, then our information flow would be tied to the Communist Party also. Um, we saw this um, when I was on active duty, when um, information Chinese hackers tied to the Chinese military were tied into hacking of the Office of Personal Management, and several million um, DOD and federal employees' information was taken and sent right back to China. So I think that's the concern there, and you're, you're exactly right. We are behind. I mean, if you look at other than Huawei, it's really Nokia and Ericsson are really the only main competitors in that market space right now. Um, And the concern that we've got is you take a country like China, there's an advantage they have. State-run capitalism. And President Xi puts out a policy for Made in China 2025 and says he is going to lead in that area. And China will dominate the globe in that area. It's much easier for them to set out on that road of march than we would in a Western capitalistic uh, way that uh, of economy that we have. And so now it's a question of, how do we tie this all together and get these economic engines going that we have in this free market in the United States to be able to compete in that space?
4: Yeah, and before we turn it back to Spider to follow up on that, I just wanna add one thing. I think you know how we've been kind of viewing this, I think from a little bit of a macro side is, China has a competitive advantage in that they can direct all their resources to a target and a plan and I think our competitive advantage, hopefully, and in the past has worked out is by letting people approach it very differently, you wind up with the best solution. so I think there's a risk that China may choose to go down a path that doesn't lead to an optimal solution, and our ability to be flexible lets us hopefully you know experiment and get to the right answer. but I see that playing out a little bit as a kind of you know philosophical difference in how we're both trying to get to you know, this end game of who can control various, you know, spaces. Um, so I just kind of wanted to add that because I think it's an important way of thinking and it goes back to some of your original thoughts that the culture and philosophy of China versus ours is different and that's coming through in how we approach these issues. Um, but anyways, I want to turn it back to you, sorry Spider.
3: No, not at all, no, no, no apologies at all. You know, the Chinese have an expression, cross the ocean in plain view. In other words, declare your intentions, get out there and do it. As Bob described, that's exactly what the Chinese are doing. They are on a long march to achieve a number of objectives near term. And then as we march toward the the, uh, centennial of the founding of the PRC in 2049. Um, And it's very, very clear what they've achieved and what their intentions are. So we should not be surprised at all with the challenges we have because First of all let me let me acknowledge the CCP is not under any stress at all. There's no sector within the Chinese either economy or in their social environments or in any corner that's going to challenge the validity the strength the reach the power the oppressiveness of the CCP. It's there in place. Xi Jinping has achieved a, a level an honorific level that has challenged Mao Zedong. Bob mentioned that early on. I mean it's un precedent of what he's been able to do. And he's declared every one of these steps. So we should not be surprised at all when Huawei steps forward, squats in the middle of this IT enterprise and creates this NG, now a 5G, could be a 6G. And finally, the world comes to the conclusion that this might be to our disadvantage if we were to engage with Huawei. What, why are we surprised? Why did it take anybody so long to get there? Thank goodness the Brits came to this conclusion and will completely eliminate Walkway from their infrastructure, their backbone, within the next couple of years. My biggest concern with that is that if it's a part of the British backbone, their IT backbone, then it's a part of NATO, which means it's a part of our infrastructure. And again, as General Walsh indicated, it's now completely meandering through our national security highly classified CAT, special category types intelligence networks and it's happening and it's been declared that it will happen so thank goodness we're coming to our senses at the same time what is the alternative what is this as peter indicated what is the domestic alternative so from a businessman's perspective i see that as a great opportunity it's a blue sky environment we don't have a really competitive advantage Let's go get one. Let's let's let the engine of democracy and that incredible creativity just start racing. Make it happen.
4: That sounds great, Spider. And I think you know, we we're going to talk about this competition for strategic resources, but I think let's segue more directly right into supply chains. Um, you know, General Chin is one of, another one of our generals. He often talks about the fact that the US military secures as much of 80% or more of their antibiotics from China. And I think you know we've talked amongst ourselves often that part of the national defense policy has been to ensure that we have a wartime quote unquote wartime production capacity so that we don't necessarily need to make the things in wartime all the time, but when we have that, we have the capacity to do so and to me, it seems like the whole coronavirus issue when especially when we look at some of the medical and the PPP issues that one, our ability to ramp up production domestically doesn't maybe seem sufficient or good enough, um, or didn't happen quick enough. And two, longer term, how much of our medical and various supplies are supposed to come from a country that we have labeled a strategic competitor, that we are increasingly seeing friction? Do you think there is going to be a lot more thought about this? Is it gonna be influenced by the Defense Department away from kind of the business side of the world? How do you see this playing out?
2: Yeah, I'll start, Peter. I think it's interesting to kind of look at, you know, going back to how the economies have intertwined. And this has been many cases good for an American business. And I think we've seen now this short-term look of profit to now looking at the long-term strategic challenges we've got with the approach that we've taken with these intertwined economies. I think it was very present when we started to get into the trade wars. And there were some uh, challenges by China. I'll give you an example on rare earth minerals. Uh, And that's a place where China uh, dominates and has really probably 80% of the control of rare earth minerals, which are very strategically important to the nation uh, and also a lot of our military capabilities. So when they threatened to cut us off, I think that really was an awakening because we had devolved a lot of that Um, industry over to China and had lost that capability in that supply chain that was vital to us. So now you've seen the Senate version of the recent defense bill uh, comes out that it says has language in there that we're going to secure that rare earth supply chain by 2030. So it's going to take some time to do that, to be able to bring the technology back, to open the mines, to be able to get that, uh, to be less reliant uh, on China than uh, we have in the past. Uh, the other piece I would throw out is you mentioned the COVID-19. Uh, that was kind of an awakening too, because as that was going on, and there was a race to try to find, you know, surgical masks, surgical gowns, uh, surgical uh, gloves, all those sort of things. We saw that 85% of the masks were made in China, and at the same time that China had increased the amount of um, uh, imports of all those things into their country they were also decreasing the amount of exports going out. So that was one there, you know, to include things like ventilators. So we started to see that there, that the American public could see the implications of it, maybe not from a national strategic standpoint, but they could see it at home in not being able to get the capabilities they want in finding the dependency that we had on China on that supply chain. Um, so I think that's, that's two different ways to look at it. One at the national security side on these rare earth minerals, minerals. And the other one is just back in your home that you weren't able to get the supplies that you would uh, hoped you could get when you needed them.
3: You know, when I look at the defense production act, um, I am, I am enthusiastic. I'm optimistic combination of optimism and faith that America knows how to turn on a dime in the instance that we're looking at now with COVID and our response to COVID is that we didn't see the dime. We didn't know when we were supposed to turn on the dime. In other words, the indicators of this problem that would have initiated the DPA, the Defense Production Act, were not visible by this administration in sufficient clarity for us to to um, initiate that. For this administration to flick the switch and say do it. Once it was declared, it happened. So I think it's I think it's unfortunate that our critical view is that we've stumbled through our COVID response when in fact. We stumbled coming out of the blocks, but we've recovered, I think, in an incredible way moving forward. The key is the Defense Production Act works. It is a requirement It starts at the top. The administration, Office of the, uh, of the President has to be able to initiate that, and certainly recommendations can come forward. But once it starts moving, there's almost nothing that American industry cannot be able to achieve. I just think we tripped around a little bit before we decided to move in that direction. So I don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's my point.
4: Well, again, that's encouraging. So yeah, I think when I look at the world going forward kind of from a macro standpoint, I am very convinced that for corporations in particular investors, figuring out the relationship with China for the next year or so is gonna be one of the most important decisions companies have to make. How do we sell into China? What can we sell into China? I think that's been an open question, people resolving that. Then what do we produce in China? How much can we produce in China? If we don't produce in China, we shift some supply chains. Where are those going to come from? I think there's going to be some pressure from ESG investors as well on this subject. I think ESG investing is becoming more refined. I think you know people are going to look at how um, you know robust is a supply chain. Clearly, when country after country has been shut down, we've seen some issues with being too dependent on any one country when things like COVID can shut down transportation, things I don't think we'd really thought about as a potential, I think people are gonna look at that. I think people are gonna spend a little bit more time to what I call attribution, where if we are getting supplying from somewhere, why is it cheaper? Is it because they're using different labor practices? What's going on? So I I think we're gonna have a lot of this. I strongly believe that regardless of which party wins which part of the 2020 election, this is gonna continue. I would say if it's a Republican leaning victory, we will see a little bit more focus on repatriation of supply chains, more policy directed towards that. I think if the Democrats win, we might see a little bit more pressure on China to conform to maybe our standards. So there's gonna be a lot of ways this plays out. I think companies are gonna to have to think long and hard about what works best for them, what is optimal, I think you know some strategies are going to shift around we're going to be I think very involved in this I think trade and ha- there's nothing more important and I think this national defense national security issue survives the election it's truly important I think it's been eye opening across the country and you know on a couple of positive notes before we turn this over to questions too which we did not really get to talk about is you know when we're looking at this economic battle with China which we some degree had we are getting closer and closer to India. We're seeing ourselves turn in favor of India, maybe over Pakistan and places to make sure, because there's a billion plus market where we understand a little bit better. Africa is another region with over a billion people, massive natural resources. You know, China effectively stole a march in Africa with us where they very aggressively went and secured natural resources in Africa. And at the time, a lot of the African leaders were quite happy to do what China because China didn't tell them to have to change their behavior at all. We would go in with demands of how to change behavior. China did not do that. Here we are a decade later. And again, some of our generals who are very involved in that region are seeing a shift in sentiment within Africa where the jobs never came. China behaves to a large degree as though the natural resources are there. So whether it's debt diplomacy or economic colonization, I think we have a lot of opportunities to ensure that we embrace the rest of the world, see where opportunities are, Africa, India re-engaging with South America. So there's a lot of possibilities. And I do think we're going to see a lot more volatility in the FX markets. I think that's something that corporations are going to have to worry a lot more about. How is the FX market influenced? And that, again, ties directly to economics, where one of the questions we're asked a lot is as these things are going, what's going to happen to U.S. interest rates? And I think a simple answer is U.S. interest rates aren't going to do as much because of the Fed's policy. So a lot of things that would normally translate into interest rate Uh, volatility, it's going to translate to FX volatility. And so I think companies are going to have to be more careful on how they manage that FX exposure as this kind of economic friction continues. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. There is a lot of potential for some hiccups. And we did not talk about, I think Spiders made this point on the past, is this is a two-way street and China sees some of the economic difficulties we're having here some of the internal you know disputes that we're having or inability to resolve you know equality and things like that and china will may or may not take advantage of that to push on their global agenda while they feel we're weak so i think there's going to be a lot going on and let me with that turn it back to rachel
3: if if i can jump in very very quick thought is that economically we have seen over the course of the last 5 months that we had this incredible dependence, if you will, in terms of production out of China, um, long exposed, very vulnerable supply lines, and then the challenges associated with the creation of a global pandemic from China, and then our lack of trust in terms of the quality of what was coming out of China. That's the proverbial putting all your eggs in one basket. Clearly, if we were to distribute that to Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Thailand as examples, we might be able to achieve a similar, probably not the same, because the the thing that China has is this incredibly robust infrastructure. Those nations have a less robust infrastructure, yet nonetheless, they could provide the gap fillers in terms of meeting repatriation, that that we want to try to repatriate to the United States, and that which we don't or choose not to create good international types of bargains that allow us to have those capabilities and those goods, same quality goods at a probably a lower price. So and you can continue to do that with China. We just need to decrease our dependency with China in that regard. And there are all, there are alternatives.
1: Great. Well, it's actually a, a perfect segue into some of the questions that we have been receiving from the audience. Um, there's definitely a theme that wants to take a look at what this may be a, a U.S., Lens that we're looking at the the view of strategic competition from the US lens, but let's take a broader look at the global lens. How are, how are allies viewing their relationship with um, China, how are other countries. Taking their decision to, you know, choose between China or the US um, as the strategic competition heats up. How is that view being taken and um, General Marks, let me pose a question to you specifically to, to start it off. Um, How are we seeing our allies operate within this new parameters of strategic competition? And then from their point of view, how are they looking at the the choice between these two world powers?
3: Um, Really good question. That really is the structure around which we need to view whether we are going to have a Trump two or we're going to have a Biden one administration going forward. But our allies remain very firm allies, but they're becoming increasingly skittish in terms of America's commitment, there have been a number of signals that we've given out to our allies and our partners and our friends that we'd like to have as either partners or allies, those that are still on the fence, that we may not be there for them. And I think that's an unintended consequence of just really kind of cracking down and saying, look, for example, NATO, you sign up for a certain GDP percentage in order to be a member of NATO, you sign that with your eyes wide open, you ignore that with your eyes wide open, and now you're being called on it. So there's a way that maybe that could be done a little more elegantly, but the end result is we need everybody to participate in a particular way that everybody agrees to. And so if the assumption is the partners are trying to make the effort, you view it differently than if you the view is our partners and allies are trying to skirt around the requirements as established. So I think the, the former is the way we should look at it, which is, let's, let's assume everybody's really trying to you know, give way together to solve these problems in a way that allows us all to meet those requirements and to meet our national security obligations. So within that, what you see is nations rolling their own solutions. Yeah, we're a partner with NATO, but I think I'm gonna have a different type of relationship with Turkey. Or Turkey is gonna have a different relationship with Iran or with Russia, or Germany is gonna have a relationship with Russia, or we're, we're, going, we're going to see these partners, these allies, create their, other, their relationships with China that might not necessarily comport with our view. Well, that's the obligation of international leadership. You've gotta be able to come down and say, relationships are up to me, and if I have a relationship with you, country X, and with China, let's figure out how we can all agree. I mean, that's just hard diplomatic work that needs to be done all the time to set the conditions before we start applying those other elements of power. Rachel, if I could just uh, jump in and just uh, put a point on that that General Marks made. You know, I think it's interesting with the Trump administration
2: when they kind of came in with the approach of America first. Um, and I think over time, some of our allies and partners like, were, what, what does this mean? And we saw that as what NATO, we saw that in ASEAN, Trans-Pacific Partnership, we saw those kind of things um, that we started moving away from alliances and partnerships to this America First thing. And so I think a lot of our allies and partners started wondering about that. But now is the, I think, as the administration's kind of put this together and said, we need to, you know, have partners and ally- allies together with us if we want our objectives to go forward. And I think the other countries are seeing it too, as we come out of COVID, uh, 19, as we see that coming out and what went on with China. We saw what went on in Hong Kong. And I think a lot of the world countries, or certainly democratic countries, saw what went on in Hong Kong and said, wait, this isn't what we expected out of China.
4: Sorry, I, ju- I just wanted to hop back in. We had a uh, technical difficulty here as we lost power. Um, I think one thing that's relevant to the questions was, and it got lost in the shuffle at the last NATO meetings, but the U.S. really did manage to push the China agenda as part of NATO. And, you know, there was a lot of attention to who paid their 2%, who went to dinner or lunch with President Trump. But the reality is probably the most important thing that happened is we kind of got NATO to insert China into part of the dialogue. So I think that's a unique way where we're starting to see a little bit more influence of NATO and how we're trying to align this um, there. and. Kind of addressing one of the other questions, I think you're seeing opportunities where companies are moving to places like Singapore, where companies are saying, "Hey, we know Asia is one of the biggest areas of growth. We want to be there."
3: You know, Rachel, let me let me jump in on that just very very quickly. And um, as General Walsh has indicated, there really is um, this interconnection, unprecedented economically, this interconnection globally, <clears throat> where there often is very little that distinguishes what happens economically among different uh, different powers. But there is and there can be region, a regional focus that can really apply intentionally designed and organized about trying to exercise levels of influence in the Asia, the Indo-Pacific region. Absolutely important initiative started by India, now getting piled on by these other nations, which is wonderful. And I think that's the type of example of where If the United States is trying to make America great, trying to establish itself as the solution provider, you've got challenges. In order to understand these different fault lines that exist, you've got to be in the region. That requires an understanding and a set of eyes and ears and some influence that's local. I think that's absolutely essential, and I don't think there's any doubt at all, that in order to move forward, we've got to be able to have these alliances that take place in multiple, in multiple uh, types of engagements, like the TPP, like the Paris Climate Accord, like INF, those kinds of arrangements with this administration has walked away from. I think in a Biden one, if it were to be, if he was to be elected, you would see all of those back on the table for either review or renewal.
1: Given the challenges faced during the phase one of the trade deal, where do you see phase two going? Um, love your take on that. And then to close it out, General... Uh, Marks or Walsh. So if you have any um, insights on what you can see from a national security or foreign policy perspective that you could that could potentially be a hurdle in the next three to six months um, uh, negotiations. Um, so Peter, I'll pose the the first part of the question to you.
4: Thanks a lot, Rachel. I think I lost video, but I think we are going to see phase one almost have to restart. I think there are a lot of questions about its viability to begin with, and post-COVID, I think the world has changed so much that who needs what from where is going to come back to the table. So I think it's we're a long way from phase two. I think phase one is going to have to be start over. And I think, unfortunately, it is going to start with a lot more friction about some of the issues I think we bypassed, right? We never really addressed 5G. So I think there's going to be some issues there. On the other hand, one of my bullish views I think that comes out of a lot of this is I ultimately think post-COVID the U.S. economy can return to where it was with a better mix where we see some drop-off in service-oriented jobs and a uptick in manufacturing-oriented jobs. So I think some of this is actually going to be very good for the domestic economy. It's going to be good across the globe. I do think companies are going to have to spend a lot of time when they say First, it's going to be a difficult choice. Do we move production out of China or not? Some of that's going to have to do with the trade deal. Some is that's going to have with the political um, lay of the land. But then the question is, do we move it to Vietnam, Mexico, Philippines, move it back to the U.S.? And I see a world where I think companies are going to try and be a little bit you know, more concerned about, well, if 30 percent of my business is in the U.S., maybe 30 percent of my stuff should be over here. 30% in Europe, 30% should be there. So I, I think this is going to be an evolution. It is going to be affected by who wins. Um, but I think we're really going to go back to the, you know, almost ground zero in terms of the trade deal after all of this is done.
3: General Marks, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would say um, nothing of significance, and I'm not a cynic. I'm, more, I'm a little more yeah, I think I'm a little more skeptical than I am cynical, but I think nothing of significance will occur through the remainder of this year. Look, this is an election year. Everything is going to tr- everybody's going to try to maintain some degree of stasis, and then just pound away at each other, each party. So it gets you get a lot of dust, you got a lot of flash, but no bang. Um, but I think what might happen as we go through to 2021 post-election, I think we're going to see. I, I would make two predictions, if you will. I'm not that I'm a prognosticator, but I would say we'll see a G7 that's going to morph into a G7 plus, which is probably going to be a G10. We're going to add Russia, China, and India. I think that's significant that we do that. They're not there for some, there's a negative reason why they're not included. The positive is they're rising in terms of influence. We need to recognize that. And, oh, by the way, you bring them to the table, which allows you to have some type of a dialogue to establish some moderating influences on top of that. that's number one. And then number two, I would hope, and I would think that there would be some type of, uh, I'm going to mix some metaphors, there will be a cyber salt type of an agreement. In other words, there has been no discussion in terms of how you govern this fifth domain of war called cyber. That must take a front and center seat going forward internationally. Again, the United States through the G7 could be the mechanism by which you can announce that and move that forward. Thanks, Rachel.
1: General Walsh, in the last 30 seconds, we have um, any final comments on that that question?
3: Yeah, I'm
2: probably not as forward-thinking as, as Spider is. What I would kind of say is if stepping back and looking at the economy has been driving American business in China and those interests. We've seen the shift um, in Amer- not only American business, but the Trump administration very focused on the economy almost to the point where President Trump had been challenged a lot on his relationships with President Xi and being too close to him um, for the interest of the economy and for the administration, the American economy continuing to buzz. That kind of is slowing down. We see that there's not a lot of talk about phase two of the trade talks, maybe only keeping phase one. And I think what's driving a lot of this is now more of a national security perspective. And I think that's very important for our clients to understand that a lot of this now in this great power competition that we've got with a new strategic competitor that we haven't had since the uh, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, that net now is driving the country. And that will drive American business and investments. And as Spider talked about, investing in other places, not just China for the good, the, the, uh, the country and the economy. a Couple of things that I see on that the South China Sea has been very evident that it's not about the economy, that's now military operations that will affect economies in that area with economic uh, zones and things like that. Um, we see Hong Kong in a national security issue of calling out China in that, and not just the U.S., other countries. And then one that I think I just finished with that I think is very important to look at is we saw China trying to work real hard to get along with the U.S mainly for economic reasons and to their benefit, to continue to move the One Belt, One Road, China forward. But the part that I really got my attention was their move into the Middle East with Iran. And that, that relationship with Iran is certainly, I would say, crossing swords with the U.S. in the Middle East. And it's going to challenge the U.S. as a leader and ally of partners in the Middle East, where we've been kind of trying to put Iran out on an island as they develop nuclear weapons and have the European countries supporting that. Now we have China come in to work with a deal with Iran that now is giving them military and intelligence secrets along with pumping money into their economy. That is a new shift in China relationships with the United States that I think are gonna change things tremendously as we go forward. So as we talk about, will it come together? Will it go apart as the elections come forward? I think things like what China is doing, that's setting the pace for the, the League of Nations around the globe to be able to be more aligned along the Western way of thinking than the way China is going.
0: Thank you very much to Lieutenant General Bob Walsh, Major General James Spider Marks, Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn for your contributions to this conversation. Special thanks goes to Peter, who was dealing with some severe weather during the webcast. That's why some of the audio wasn't as good as it usually is, but we tried to do our best, and we appreciate him for toughing it out for us. Special thanks goes to our listeners as well for taking the time. We really do appreciate the opportunity to share our geopolitical experts with you. If you have any interest in engaging with our geopolitical experts directly, or if you would like to be invited to future web events like this one, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-destabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.